This episode of the Policing Matters podcast is sponsored by the Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program at the University of San Diego. Learn how this nationally ranked online program can help you be a force for change at san diego.edu/slash police one. Well, you're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, so many factors are involved before the use of force by a police officer. The training, the ability, experience, tactics on the part of the officer, and behaviors exhibited by the offender. Weapons, crime, threats, and other conditions, and other factors. In the aftermath, the critics come out from internal and external review boards, the public, elected officials, the media, and even other law enforcement officers. Certainly some other use of force incidents may be decided by a judge and jury. Today, we are lucky. We have Sergeant Jamie Borden, police veteran and force analysis expert. Sergeant Borden is the founder of Critical Incident Review, LLC, and the developer of the Enhanced Force Investigations and Cognitive Interview Certification Course. Force Investigations, Video Review and Analysis, and the Street Cops Perspective on Critical Force Dynamics and Human Factors. A post-certified police veteran since 1997 with 25 years continued professional involvement in law enforcement as an instructor, lecturer, and consultant nationally, Sergeant J.B. Borden was tasked with the creation and implementation of the Use of Force Training and Analysis Unit for the agency. The unit was created specifically to identify and analyze human factors and associated officer performance issues related to police use of force and critical incident investigations. In addition to successfully receiving multiple certifications in force analysis, Borden was also the first person to complete the Advanced Human Factors Specialist Program created by the Force Science Institute, where he was also an instructor. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Sergeant Jamie Borden. Thank you for having me on the show, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm learning more and more about you and your expertise and just the outstanding work that you've done uh, to assist officers better understand uh, force, uh, to examine use of force and explain why things happen and maybe how we can enhance or, or perfect our training. Tell us about how you got into this specific area of force science uh, review. Well, so the review of force itself and, and um, the Force Science Institute, which is a, an entity which is oftentimes confused with a, uh, an, an element of force, it's, um, it was part of my beginning and uh, I, I was promoted into the training bureau uh, at the department that I retired from. And the first task I was given because of my background <clears throat> and my uh, knowledge in, uh, you know, use of force tactics and things of that nature, I was put in charge of revamping our use of force policies and quickly became the use of force guy, quote unquote, uh, for our department. And uh, one of my first tasks was to take a look at the policy and look at the ACLU and what they had done with policies and surrounding mega departments in my area 
and you know take a look at changes that needed to be made. And uh, as I was moving and and progressing through this new position of mine, I uh, was told to look for whatever training was available out there to to progress and to promote my you know my knowledge structure, my foundational application knowledge of this of this. And I found the Four Science Institute early on. Uh, became a certified analyst with them, and and it wasn't quite enough. And I become I quickly became passionate about um, the subject matter simply because I saw where the lacking aspects of it were, and I saw what those lacking aspects, uh, those the the I guess for lack of a better term, the things that were missing in knowledge in a knowledge base for use of force were affecting our department and the way officers chose and made decisions to use force. It, it affected their confidence. And as I became more and more passionate about it, I, I dug in and I, I kept, after I was certified as an analyst, I kept bothering Dr. Lewinsky. And I, I literally would call him once or twice a week and say, hey, what's next? What do you have? Because they were the only game in town, so to speak, on learning about the factors that are involved in a decision-making process in a critical incident. They developed the advanced specialist course for me, and I think it was large in part to shut me up. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I became the first advanced specialist, and, and that was a, a rigorous 400 plus hours face-to-face uh, -face with Dr. Lewinsky uh, in the development of that course and, uh, and uh, identifying relevant material because I was actually using it in my department. I created the use of force training and analysis unit. And shortly after I became certified as an advanced specialist, Dr. Lewinsky called me and asked me if I would be an instructor for the Institute uh, because of my intuitive uh, knowledge about the human performance aspect. And that came more uh, large in part due to my music career over and above my police career because of the level of practice and the level of cognitive um, connection between eye-hand coordination and all of the different thought processes. And uh, so with my combination of police work and my work in music as a professional musician, I became an instructor and I worked for them for almost nine years, became a senior and lead instructor uh, early on. And I taught over 110 certification courses and two-day introductory courses for them uh, before the development of my own company, where I branched off with uh, the information and building on what they were teaching about the research aspect, I built into the application aspect. Because one of the questions I got very often as a lead instructor was, man, this information is outstanding. It's ringing a chime with me. My last incident now makes sense. But so what? Now, now what do we do with it? And where my position was locked into an investigative review and analysis perspective with the unit I had created for my department, the use of force training and analysis unit, I had the luxury of learning, teaching, applying, succeeding and failing, building knowledge and wisdom with this information, which was, uh, it's not a luxury that a lot of uh, officers get. A lot of officers get the knowledge, but they don't have the opportunity to apply it right away. So we have to go back and we have to search through information. Well, 
the creation of my enhanced force investigations course was based large in part on the application of this knowledge that's so, so important in police work. The missing link is the human factor that oftentimes gets overlooked in a police use of force. And a, a very simple example is the officer caused the danger or the imminent jeopardy by their own actions. And that's always been, and, and I understand what the implications of that are, but in the cases that I've had where that is the, the allegation, no consideration is given to the actions of the suspect who has got a malevolent intention towards the police officer. And, and there's all of these different tactics that they say they, meaning whoever is making the allegation. And this isn't just people from the outside. This is internal uh, issues with uh, command staff and decision makers in the department. Our policy states X, Y, and Z, and you should have done something different to create time distance for you to make a better decision or uh, amass other resources and options. Well, there's no action that an officer can take in, in certain instances where time is compressed to change the behavior of the suspect. Reeling backwards cre to create time and distance may not always work in a situation where a subject is closing distance on an officer with a box cutter or a knife or a ball bat or a, a, a whatever the implement might be. And the claim is still, well, it would have had a different outcome if you would have just simply backed up and used your car as cover. Well, we, we see cases all the time where officers are being chased by a subject with a knife. And we are at a, at a, at a severe disadvantage because our focus is forward on a consequential threat, meaning the consequences of life and death are facing the officer in that moment. And now they're being tasked with running backwards at half the speed that a subject can run forward, basically based on the studies that are out there, and placing themselves and others in what I would say is a, is a tragically uh, dangerous position because they're not looking at where they're going. They're not aware of what cover is there. We see officers backing into traffic. We see officers conducting uh, their, their actions based on these, uh, what would be aspirational goals and, uh, and tactics that are listed in a policy. And then that policy becomes the measure of performance because decision makers don't see what they've written in policy. They use that against the officer. And, and it's a tragic outcome for the officer in many cases. They lose their jobs. They've served the community. And one of the last cases I've had, the officer months before saved a drowning baby from a pool. The, the baby was blue. Him and his partner saved this child. Um, he was on the helicopter detail for the president in the Marines. This is, this is an outstanding citizen in our community who was held to a standard in police work that was absolutely outside of the human capability realm in moving backwards and making decisions under the compression of time. And no emphasis was ever put on the actions of the suspect in this case. And, you know, we're, it, it, things are still up in the air. The officer may get their, their job back. I presented this, these concepts to an arbitration board. And, um, you know, we, we just have to, I, I wish I could take the nation as a group and give them some education in what it's like to face off an individual that wants to cause you harm. That is a position that many people have never been in. 
you place a subject 15 feet from uh, someone who would be judgmental of this with a, a box cutter in their hand and tell you, you've got two and a half seconds to make a decision. And that's because I'm moving slowly on what you're going to do before I attempt to kill you. They would see the magnitude of what the officers are faced with in these, in these moments. And that doesn't mean that we can't extrapolate training from these critical incidents. We can. We can try to do things better the next time. The problem is, is that these incidents are so unique in their construct because the, the elements are different. Graham versus Connor states, there is no mechanical application of these definitions because every incident is so different. We can have parameters and, and guidelines within policy, but to use those as a measure of performance in hindsight, based on what we know after the investigation, in my opinion, is criminal in the judgment of an officer. It goes against our federal standards, our Supreme Court standards through Graham versus Connor. And, and it's a scary environment for us to be in as police officers. And I, I think those of us that are out there that are trying to make these points and do not take, take it uh, in the context that police officers don't do things wrong or don't do things with malevolent intention because I've got cases against officers as well. And yeah. it's heartbreaking, but it happens. And we have to, we have to realize that. But the majority of those cases are officers doing the right thing for the right reason under the compression of time with extremely limited to no other resources available to them. For sure. You bring up some excellent points and, and real points, not theory. And, you know, I respect my colleagues, my PhD colleagues in, that teach criminal justice. But uh, sometimes when they talk about evidence-based practices, they're talking about controlled conditions. They don't see the external factors or the fact that you're dealing with a suspect who's not going, who hasn't read your de-escalation policy and, and doesn't know his obligation to uh, being, you know, subject to de-escalation. And we, we had a similar situation where uh, a, a hot prowl burglar uh, terrorized a woman. The police uh, responding to the call saw him a, a couple blocks later before the officers could alight from their vehicle. Uh, the suspect attacked him with a, a liquor bottle, beating one officer pretty severely about the head. As he's stumbling out, his partner um, gets out, uh, tries to grab the individual who now starts chasing this second officer. So it's this melee in the street. Officer, uh, you know, laying down on the ground on his back, fires at the individual, hits him. Uh, the other partner, who's probably concussed, also fires. The charges are reduced against the hot prowl burglar and the officers are charged in shooting the individual here in San Francisco. And so you've got these just incredible situations we wouldn't have seen five years ago. You talk about Graham versus Connor where we've, we've looked at the objective reasonableness standard and in some states, definitely some cities, we've moved the language to necessary use of force. Have you seen that shift? Is that a national uh, shift in, in changing the ob objective reasonableness standard? It's, it is not necessarily a national shift. The language, uh, we, we get proportional use of force. We get uh, necessary use of force. Both of those are hindsight attributes. And we don't know what is actually necessary until after the investigation is done. Well, the subject uh, uh, turned out to be unarmed or was using something that is deemed or touted as 
uh, as not a deadly weapon because it wasn't a handgun and it wasn't a knife doesn't mean that it wasn't a handgun. A liquor bottle can be a deadly weapon. It's obvious in this last case. And to me, it's, it is one of the deepest tragedies that this nation is experiencing right now in the fact that an officer can be charged criminally when they were assaulted, nearly killed, had to defend themselves against this criminal. This is over and above every other aspect of police work. This is common self-defense uh, you know, common self-defense uh, components where officers now lose their right to self-defense simply because they're wearing a uniform. And in many cases, it's because the community is holding them to a standard that exceeds human capability. That uniform does not make superhuman beings out of human beings. It is a, that uniform is a telling sign of someone who has signed up to serve the community. And this is the results that we're getting and not just in San Francisco, but all over the country. However, some jurisdictions, and I get the, I get the opportunity to teach across the country, some jurisdictions are, are taking a very hard stand against necessary use of force in terms of judgment of the officer in hindsight, um, proportional use of force to the, to the resistance or the use of force that we're experiencing from the suspect is another hindsight attribute that, that oftentimes is used against the officer. But for the first time, and, and I'm going to tell you this uh, with pride, for the first time in five years, I'm starting to feel the pendulum start to break loose from being stuck hard to the left. And it, it didn't swing to the left. It swung to the left and stuck in the wall. And it was, it was maintaining that hard left position. And I'm not feeling it swing to the right yet. And, and not to make this a political standpoint, but we both know that politics has a play in this. And I'm feeling that pendulum start to rattle loose. And I'm starting to feel people fight back against the improprieties that are happening against our police officers. And we, aren't we, we are having issues with maintaining law enforcement officers on the job. They're, they're, they're retiring, they're quitting, they're changing professions. We're having an even harder time finding officers that will take the job because they see officers in the media and, and on these uh, high profile cases being criminalized for making decisions under the compression of time that very few human beings are A, willing to do or be capable of doing, even if they were willing to do it. So we're in a problem area. And in and, uh, and, and the answer to your question, I am not seeing the nation glom on to necessary or proportional use of force. In the more extreme areas, yeah, we're seeing it a little bit. Um, uh, and unfortunately, California is one of those extreme areas where we where we see some things that and hear some things that just don't make sense to us, especially us that have been veterans in this business for you know 20, 25 years, 30 years. We're seeing a different environment in law enforcement, and it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And I, I, would, I would beg people that are in the job right now to stay in it, and, and, but be very careful, be very aware, and, and, and not only of the crime that's in the street, because we're trained for that, but we're not trained to identify the issues in an investigation that are going to affect us. And that's where, um, proudly, I've inserted my company into is is uh, identifying those issues and, and educating officers on those critical dynamics and the human factors that, that they don't even know are happening. They, they'll, they'll carry a, 
uh, a misinterpretation of their own incident for years until they hear this information. And once they hear it, it turns the light on for them and, and it literally lifts the weight off their shoulder. I've seen it in every single class I've ever taught. An officer will come up to me sometimes with a tear in their eye, not because they're, they're sad or it, it's not a, a sign of weakness, but it's a sign of relief. They've got a tear in their eye because of the, the, the weight that's been lifted off them because they didn't understand why the allegations that were made against them were made and sustained and how they had to carry this now, this judgment with them when it, it's simply a misinterpretation of the factors involved. Yeah, and thanks to you and, and people like you and Von Kleem and, and others at For Science um, who are using science and human behavior to explain uh, use of force situations. Do your recommendations remain with uh, the originating agency that you may be reviewing or do you have inroads to IACP or state posts or PERF uh, to, to institutionalize your recommendations? Well, so that's a, that's a very difficult path to go down. Um, as you know, uh, associations like PERF and, and IACP, uh, they have a very big voice in our, in our law enforcement community. However, it's very hard to get an inroad uh, to get some of these opinions voiced. And um, even with For Science, as big as a company as For Science is, uh, the recommendations, and I hate to say this, and I say it very cautiously, um, human factors and the application of human factors is oftentimes frowned upon. There are departments that literally choose sides between PERF and For Science. What does that even mean? It's not two different belief systems. It's the improvement of law enforcement through education, through uh, review and analysis of very, very controversial court cases and, and dissemination of very important information to improve the contacts between law enforcement and communities. And those, those kinds of barriers between um, these associations like IACP and PERF, and, and I'm not judging them at all, but it's very hard for us. And, and I've got Every case that I do, the hundreds of cases that I've done, every single one of them is a case study that could be turned into training to better our environment. Mm. Now, what I do is I use my, my personal platform that I've created through Critical Incident Review, my company, to, to use this information to better and improve people's perspective, people meaning investigators, decision makers, law enforcement officers, uh, communities. Where I'm, I've got a class where I'm teaching uh, myself and Dr. Taylor, uh, Dr. Paul Taylor from the University of uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, are teaching for the DOJ a use of force review board, which is all uh, citizens from the community that, that have no experience in use of force. They have no experience in forensic video review and examination. And we are holding a day-long class for them so that when they review these cases, they're doing it with uh, at least the beginnings of a foundation of knowledge and application so that they aren't knee-jerk reacting to the, to the, the things that appear um, terrible on video. You know, mm. that things look bad on video. We know that. Um, but where our problems lie is that we, we have individuals that will knee-jerk react to that 
They will take it as it's framed by whoever is submitting the evidence. They see now what, what the information is, how it's been framed, and then they make their decisions based on that. And that framing is one of the deepest biases that we have to navigate as investigators and as decision makers. And these citizen-based use of force review boards are usually, um, their participants have very little to zero experience or knowledge about these aspects of investigating uh, an officer-involved use of force. Even our own investigators, Jim, are, you know, a, a, a very talented homicide investigator will be assigned to an officer-involved shooting. And, and without the knowledge that this investigation is very, very different than a normal homicide investigation. Most homicide or murder investigations, if you will, um, end at the point that an OIS begins. We know who did it. We have the weapon. We know what time. It's caught on video. The officer was there, has done a walkthrough, said that they were involved in the shooting, said they pulled the trigger. We have enough, and that's where a homicide investigation would end. What's missing in our investigations in the law enforcement side is a, is a substantiated knowledge in why the officer did what they did. We know what happened in the first two hours that we're on a, a, crime, a, a crime against an officer where use of force has occurred. Within two hours, we have a pretty good idea about what happened. Now we have to navigate what we know about that scenario and gather data as an objective data set to identify why the officer did what they did. That's what's missing. When someone kills someone in a murder or a homicide, we don't, we don't necessarily care why they did it. We just care that we can produce enough PC to get prosecutorial merit to make an arrest and take it to court, right? That's, that's where it ends and the officer-involved investigation begins. We need to know why. And a lot of what we talk about in the Enhanced Force Investigations course is how to get to the why, how to effectively get to the why. And we've got a lot of barriers to navigate. As an officer interviewing an officer, the officer who's talking to me believes that I know the same things that they do in the incident. And I may not. I may not have the same training. I may not have the same perspective. And those assumptions create gaps that are literally impossible to fill after the fact, because then it becomes uh, the accusations are that there's collusion, that you changed your story. That So it's very important that we as investigators, as police officers on the street, as decision makers, have a very keen understanding of the importance of these investigations when an officer is involved in a critical incident. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to get more into the human factors and decision makings that happen within the incident themselves. But first, I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge our sponsor. Do you want to be a better leader? Who doesn't, right? The University of San Diego has created an incredible online master's degree specifically for law enforcement professionals. The Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program was developed by law enforcement for law enforcement, and it's consistently ranked as one of the best online programs in the country. Whether you're preparing for promotion or simply want to be the best leader you can be, the MS. LEPSOL program will help you be a force for change, affordable, online, and endorsed by law enforcement. Learn more at sandiego.edu slash police one. 
And we're back and I'm speaking with Sergeant Jamie Borden from Critical Incident Review. He is a force expert and um, you bring up some great uh, issues. And, uh, you know, we've seen so many over the last couple of years that have uh, incidents involving force, police officers in situations where deadly force is used. Um, clearly, uh, in at least a few of these incidents, uh, I think to the educated eye, we can see panic starting to creep in. How do you talk about, uh, I mean, you, you're an expert on use of force, you know the technical aspects of force and you can articulate them. How do you explain when an officer uh, deviates from the script of, of force that they've been trained in and, and maybe make a mistake in, in using some other or applying another type of force? That's a, that's a great question. And, and so here's the thing, officers, and, and I want you to ponder this for just a second. Officers in general are not experts in use of force. And to be an expert in something, it takes an incredible amount of time and effort and focus on a particular subject within a very broad subject to become an expert in anything. And, and imagine an officer getting four hours of training four to eight hours of training in some sort of hand-to-hand -hand defensive tactic, four hours of training, and then they are expected to go out and apply that perfectly once or maybe twice in a year. And then we, we have an officer that is trained in deadly force. They're trained about the, uh, the hindsight analytics of Graham versus Connor and how they're going to be judged in a critical use of force. And most of our officers are never involved in a critical deadly use of force. The majority are never involved. That does not make experts out of police officers. So when they deviate from a policy or they deviate from what was uh, trained that year or some of these things happen, are they deviating from something that they're experts in? No, they're not. They're applying what is in their mind at that moment, the most successful application of force that they believe is going to stop the threat, protect their lives or protect the lives of another. And, and, and you made a statement about you in, in your question about the perspective of the officer and, and some, some level of panic. Because we get eight to 16 to maybe 24 hours of training in total regarding baton, taser, firearms, DTs, whatever the case might be, doesn't mean that an officer is not going to show fear when their life is on the line, when the consequences of life and death are facing them in that moment. And when we see that fear, we see breathing patterns, we hear, uh, articulations in the voice, inflections in the voice that are clearly reflective of an officer showing signs of fear. Well, that's not necessarily panic. It can be, but that's a fear marker. And, and in the analysis of force, I look for those fear markers and I will literally analyze uh, radio traffic from the officer from calls that are not associated from days before so that I can have an understanding of their voice when they're not under stress and then compare it to their voice when they're under stress. 
that is indicative of human factors and physiological and even biochemical reactions in the body that are now affecting the officer's ability to make an optimal decision. This is where the factors of being a human being are so important to consider. When the consequences of life and death are facing an officer in those moments, there are physical things happening to the human body that the officer is navigating. The level of, uh, of expertise and use of force is not there. We cannot claim that any officer is an expert in use of force unless they are an expert in use of force. Even myself, who I've got a background in martial arts, I've got uh, a background in defensive tactics and, and teaching defensive tactics. The cases where I've been involved in a use of force, things are happening at an intuitive level because of the expertise that I have, what little expertise I have in those areas. I am not on the mat five times a week. I am not teaching people defensive tactics anymore. And when I was, it was at a very limited level, right? A very limited scale of maybe one month a year. And that doesn't make you an expert. It makes you the purveyor of information. We, we want to expose officers to this, but exposure does not create experts. Just like knowledge doesn't create wisdom. Knowledge is, is, uh, has to be uh, reflected upon. It has to be applied. You have to succeed and fail, and you have to develop wisdom to actually be an expert. And, and I'll tell you, in my field, I day to day, 10 to 15 hours a day, I review cases, I study, I read, I see the, the, the bookshelf behind you, and you can see my bookshelf. We spend a lot of time reading and rereading so that we are accurate in our words, we're accurate in our thought processes. That is not the opportunity that our officers get when they're exposed to this knowledge. Exposure to knowledge is very different. And in these cases, exposure to knowledge has a, a very finite result on the outcome of the case. Because there's a policy in place and a signature that said the officer was in training regarding that policy doesn't mean that they are going to be capable of staying within the parameters of that policy because as you said, and, and this was profound, and I've said this many times, our citizens do not follow policy. Our citizens uh, do not necessarily want to communicate with police officers. De-escalation is not a tactic. It's a goal. De-escalation is a goal that has a, a myriad of tactics that we use to achieve de-escalation. And that is a misinterpreted uh, term. And the terminology is oftentimes misused in these cases. When we think about that, our communication efforts with a suspect are incumbent on them wanting to return communication to us. There's a broadcast and receive component. And if receive isn't happening, the broadcast is irrelevant. And, and that communication where time and policies will read where time is available, where it is safe and feasible to do so. All of those escape hatches I see in policy, but those are oftentimes pushed off to the right so that it, it, we, we boil down to it didn't happen. Well, let's figure out why. And this is what I was talking about, the importance of why. If that didn't happen and it's in policy, it's imperative that we figure out why, because it may not have been safe. It may not have been feasible. There may not have been time. It may not have had the components necessary to change the behavior of a malevolent suspect. And those are things that are overlooked. 
Why didn't it happen? If it was in policy and it was in training, it's imperative for us to figure out why. Because in most cases, there's a very good explanation as to why it didn't happen. And the why answers the question, was it reasonable or unreasonable? And many cases, the why will answer that. The why will take us into the grand standards where we need to go. So, and, and that, that's a very important point that you made earlier on. Well, thanks. I mean, great uh, points that you make there. Thank you for the distinction between fear markers and panic. Um, you know, it's, it's oftentimes, you know, a supervisor has to, you know, goad it out of the officer involved in, in an incident to say, well, what were you thinking at the time? Where did you fear? You know, it's, it seems like officers are hesitant to write in a report that they actually had fear during an incident. Um, I want to make a shift. I mean, you mentioned martial arts and you mentioned, you know, the capability of an officer. Um, are you encountering, are you switching up your, your, um, your approach to use of force incidents now with the in introduction of new technology like the bola wrap or the jujitsu, the Brazilian jujitsu, you know, I had um, Henner Gracie on the show. He was awesome. And since then, it's been about a year now. I mean, he's made inroads to, I think, 25 or 30 states posts where they are using jujitsu as a defensive tactic. Yeah. And so the answer is yes. And the new technology and the new, uh, the, the uh, I guess the resulting tactics that are happening from what technology is out there. And let's, let's boil the technology down to body-worn cameras. And, and uh, there's been some, some big questions about <clears throat> uh, defensive tactics being taken off the menu or out of policy and, or, or being stated that, for instance, the carotid restraint has is, is been taken out of policy in many states. Um, and again, it comes down to being an expert in applying the carotid restraint. The carotid restraint is, is effective, um, in, and this is from years of training, and, and we, I actually trained, the Gracies trained our officers at the department that I retired from, and that's where I got a lot of my mat time was with, uh, you know, the, the knowledge base that came from the Gracies. Unbelievable, fantastic instructors, and a great, great body of knowledge, but the officers that show up to do the, to, for mat exercises, they open it up for three, four days a week for officers to show up and it's strong for a little while and then it tapers off because life happens. And I wanna see more and more of that. And I also wanna see, and, and I would love officers to realize that law enforcement today is no longer just a career. It is a practiced career, much like uh, law or uh, physicians. There's, there's a level of in, involvement that has to be in place for officers to maintain proficiency in the use of tactics, the, the decision-making processes. And where I see the biggest disconnects, and, and one of the questions was, why are these things being taken out of policy? And is it reasonable for them to be taken out of policy? Let's talk about the carotid restraint. The carotid restraint has been taken out of policy large in part because of the way it looks on video. We have a carotid restraint applied and which looks like a chokehold. And then we have a subject that uh, tragically passes away in an in-custody death scenario. 
And because of what the video shows uh, of a, a chokehold or something that appears to be a chokehold, it automatically goes, the allegations go against the officer that the officer used deadly force or the inappropriate application of a carotid restraint or any of those things. Well, it's hard to see on video exactly what's happening with a, a neck restraint, a choke or a carotid restraint. There's a minus one restraint where we're simply controlling somebody by the, by the head and we're not putting any pressure on the neck. There's the carotid restraint where we're purposefully putting pressure on the carotid arteries. And then there's a chokehold that is used in deadly force scenarios because there's no other choices. They all look like a chokehold and they've been taken out of policy large in part because of appearances and how they look. An officer that, that is successful in the application of a carotid restraint, um, it, it is, it, it's a less lethal application of force, but if something tragic happens in that incident, it will be viewed as a lethal use of force, and that's a very hard case to win, and I've seen it time and time again in our country. So, you know, the, the technology we have, the, the cameras, the uh, improvements that Taser is making to, uh, to their implementations. Um, and we still see tragic uh, outcomes with, with Taser, even though they're making improvements because it still feels like a gun. And that creates uh, a scenario where sometimes mistakes happen. Um, all of these implementations of technology and improvements and how they intertwine with tactics have to be very, very carefully thought out. And to ask if it's reasonable, if the carotid restraint has been taken off the menu, um, based on the liability for departments, and I hate to be the guy that talks about liability, but unfortunately, I've seen departments deeply affected by the use of the carotid in one case out of 10,000, where it ends up looking bad on video. Um, it takes, it unfortunately takes that tool away from the officer and it, it can be damaging. The baton has been taken away from uh, jailers because of uh, a subject that moved when a baton was being uh, swung at a green area, the subject moved, the officer inadvertently hit a yellow or red area and it had a tragic outcome. They've taken batons out of the mix. That is one of the most important tools that can be used in, in a jail because it's used more often as a pry tool to get per, a person's arms out from under them, you know, other, other tactical applications. But because of one apparent misuse or perceived misuse of that implement, it's taken off the menu and officers no longer have that tool to use in a, in a, in a corrections environment. And that, that can be very dangerous, can be a very dangerous um, uh, decision on, on the part of the entity. And, and listen, it, it, it's, it appears to be a good reason at the time, but it, it has to be very thoughtfully implemented in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, again, you bring up some, some great, uh, issues and arguments and, you know, when we hear of, uh, law enforcement, uh, detractors saying that they want evidence-based, uh, procedures and, and policies, uh, it really did not seem evidence-based when, uh, like you say, one out of 10,000 uses goes um, you know, awry with carotid use, when often when there is a death associated with carotid, uh, usually involves 
you know, pre-existing medical condition or drugs on board or something else associated with the use of the carotid. Um, you know, I, I think if we were to look at it and do an evidence-based study, we would see that the use of the carotid uh, reduces the time of, of fights, reduces the possibility of injury to both the suspect and the officer. So um, yeah, why, why don't we have some really good studies on those kinds of things rather than say, you know, it's awful, but lawful. So let's get rid of it. Let's well, just... and, and you make a great point because there, there are actually studies out there that, that uh, very respected researchers have done regarding in custody deaths. And when you hear that a department is using evidence-based training and policy application, the evidence is from a particular incident not the thousands of successful incidents that have occurred with very similar components in, in, in the actual use of force. That those aren't the evidence that are, that's not the evidence that's being weighed. And, and this is the problem that we have. An officer that's involved in a shooting on a car stop, how many car stops has that officer been involved in where that went exactly as the officer planned it to go? Every single one of them up to that one where he was involved in a shooting, he or she was involved in a shooting, was just another car stop and tactics become second nature. And, they, and then we have one incident where an officer is involved in a shooting and it automatically goes back to, well, the officer became complacent. Well, hold on a minute. That is a blanket excuse for a particular outcome in an environment where this is what the officer does minute to minute, day to day, month to month, and year to year. And then one outcome is the evidence-based decision to either get rid of the implement or uh, discipline the officer or any of these other things. And it just it seems very, very lopsided to me. And, but that's, that's the game that we're up against, unfortunately. That's the game that we're playing. Nobody's concerned about the successes. Everyone is only concerned about the outcome that demands attention. And we're missing the boat by not giving all of these incidents attention. They've all got to be factored in to the evidence-based decision-making processes of entities and departments and municipalities and sheriff's departments and every everyone who's involved in this decision process. Yeah, well, we know the opposite number to evidence-based is a moral panic. And unfortunately, a lot of the legislation has come from a moral panic over some of these specific incidents. Hey, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you are busy and you are doing some great work. Let me ask you one last thing, and that is what is the most common misperception that you have to re-educate or, or maybe explain to civilian groups, review boards, defense attorneys, courtrooms? What's, what are the couple of things that, that pop up the most that seem so apparent to you? Well, so, and, and, and what I, <laughs> you make a very good point with this, Jim. And what, a, what seems so apparent to me is considered a bias. And, and, and that has to be very carefully weighed. What is apparent to me can easily become a, a bias in my review and my analysis. So the things that come up that affect uh, decision makers or uh, those that, that would be uh, the trier of fact it is the simple fact that the human condition 
the human factor aspect of these critical incidents that, that be, become controversial by nature um, is that the human being in, involved in the incident that is being filmed or recorded audibly or, or through video, digital video means is living in reality and being judged in two dimensions. And when I make this point that judgment is happening in an alternate universe, it, it, that, it, that is an actual factual statement. Judgment is happening in two dimensions where we are looking at a video where time, distance, speed, and motion are all distorted in video with an officer who's involved in reality, three dimensions, four or even five dimensions, the smell, the wind, the sound of a motor, the, the visual perceptions, the, the intense focus of attention. All of these things also distort time, distance, speed, and motion. So now we have a video that's being reviewed by someone in the comfort of their office that potentially distorts time, distance, speed, and motion. An officer involved in the incident whereas experiencing distortions in time, distance, speed, and motion, which are affecting their decisions. And now we have a review and judgment of a video of an officer's actions, and the information that's being reviewed is colliding with the human factors that the officer's experiencing. Now to add to that stack of what I would call confusion, is the individuals watching the video are also susceptible to human factors. They've got focus of attention. They're focused on a particular thing in the video and will miss other aspects of it. What they're focused on in the judgment of that officer's actions in the video is most oftentimes different than what the officer was focused on as a player in the video. So we have bifurcated focus of attention and most of it is is based on hindsight attribution, meaning that the reviewer of the video has watched the video through, somebody has handed to them and said, hey, I think this is an accidental discharge, right? As an example, the viewer of the video is now looking for the attributes of an accidental discharge and will quantify it because that's what it looks like. Where the officer was focused on different things, perceiving and, and processing different information, filtering out the majority of information in the real environment where the reviewer is looking at two dimensions where distance is distorted, where uh, the, uh, encode, the, the simple encoding process of the video very well could be distorting the reality that we see on the video. So we are literally judging an officer in another dimension and in an alternate universe, if you will. And that is the point that I try to make is that the officer's experience is very different than the experience of reviewing a video after the fact. It's, and, and that seems very deep, but every component of that, when I make an example in, uh, for instance, the classes with uh, citizens, one of the first things that I have them do is write down what they are perceiving in the room, distance from the speaker, the podium, uh, height of the ceiling and walls. And then I have them take out their cell phone and I have them take a picture of the environment. And then I have them relate that picture to what they're experiencing in the room. 
And I'm going to tell you, it does not align. Not one aspect of it aligns. And there's no consequences of life and death. There's no compression of time. There's no uh, adherence to time, distance, speed, and motion for the decision-making process. It's simply a cell phone that shows one perspective and what the student is actually experiencing in the classroom. That point is probably the most important point we can make. When they view the video, they know at that point the officer is perceiving and processing and interpreting different information than the reviewer is. So I would say that is my most important component. Yeah, that's a good one. And, you know, for all the Monday morning quarterbacks that we see and hear from social media, you know, there's an incident that's portrayed uh, in a short video. And then the experts, quote experts, I'm finger quoting now, come yeah. out of the woodwork and tell us all what went wrong. Ugh infuriating it, it is it gets your blood pressure up i don't i really have given up coffee because i just read an article and i'm awake for three days <laughs> hey thanks so much for taking time being on the show sergeant jamie borden police veteran force analysis expert founder of critical incident review we've posted your your website link uh under the show notes um Tell us where can we find out uh, where your next articles are coming out, uh, where your training's going to be. Uh, how can, hey, and you know what? I found out a, an important tip about you today that you are a professional drummer and vocalist. Uh, you're a star on YouTube. Uh, I'm going to research you more. I'm going to add you to my Spotify uh, playlist. Uh, tell us more. <laughs> where, where can we find out more about you? Um, I, well, unfortunately, just Google Jamie Borden uh, and, and a, a myriad of things will come up. But I will warn you this. Uh, don't dig too deep. I lived through the 80s and the 90s. And I, uh, there are pictures that once you see them, you cannot unring that bell. So uh, I would caution you to uh, limit your search to the last five years. And uh, yeah, I, I've been a professional musician. I've been equally as passionate about music as I have been police work my entire career. I've had a very, very uh, fortunate existence in police work and music. Uh, I rely on both of them to get me through my day. Uh, I've recorded a couple of different records that are, are available out there and the proceeds from those go to benefit uh, law enforcement charities. It's just a way that I can kind of use what gifts I have to give back to the profession that I'm so passionate about. Um, and yeah, just, uh, you run a search on Jamie Borden. I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid you'll find some pretty interesting stuff. So, um, it, it's all been, been very, very, uh, interesting to say the least for the last 40 years. Um, you can, uh, find out more about the classes on criticalincidentreview.com and, and, uh, you know, peruse that, um, one of the trainings that I've got coming up, um, probably soonest is going to be a presentation for the Association of Force Investigators. Um, if you have not heard of AFI, I would uh, highly recommend looking up AFI and becoming a member. It's, um, it's focused on all disciplines of uh, force review and analysis. And we, we are, we've got attorneys, psychologists, biomechanical experts, um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Damolin is, is uh, one of our uh, members, and he's done some great presentations. There's six uh, certified instruction courses a year. There's a lot of conversation, and, and in my opinion, 
above and beyond all of the training that we get and that we seek out, the conversations that we have amongst one another as professionals is probably the most important catalyst for change. So keep the conversations going. Talk about these things. Don't necessarily have to agree or disagree. It's not important uh, what your stand on it is. What's important is that we share our positions in law enforcement to help better uh, what's happening in our environment. Be uh, Have a level of humility about the things that you've experienced in your past to make things better in your future. Um, I think humility is one of the, the, the missing components in uh, gaining knowledge and turning that knowledge into a body of knowledge and a foundational uh, standing to gain wisdom and to actually be able to uh, to implement change in, in our profession. So take it very seriously and keep the conversations going, which I'm, I'm hoping our podcast does. And it's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Jim. Hey, thanks so much. And, and, and kudos for what you do for the industry. Uh, yeah, we're lifelong learners, right? And I think our listeners are, and that's why they're listening to hear from uh, experts like you. Thanks again. Hey, um, to our listeners, thanks for uh, listening in to Policing Matters and drop us a line, policing matters at policeone.com. That's policing matters at policeone.com. If you email us, uh, tell us what you think of the show. Uh, who do you want to hear from? What are the issues you want to hear about? We're happy to set that up. We'll get right back to you. I'll, I'll respond to you myself or my editor will respond. Hey, take good care of yourself and uh, be safe. And we will be talking to you again real soon.